Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. From KUOW in Seattle, this is Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. I'm Daryl Peel. I'm a professor of agricultural economics and the extension livestock marketing specialist uh, at Oklahoma State University. Scientists in England today confirmed earlier tests showing that a cow slaughtered in Washington state had mad cow disease. 23rd of December, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, actually my boss, I think it was, called me at home and told me uh, that uh, this thing was happening and I should probably check on it. I had a cell phone then, and uh, by the next morning, uh, my home phone and my cell phone alternated with reporters calling me from all over the country. My kids were absolutely in amazement. They would sort of take turns bringing me whichever phone was ringing. 20 years ago, on December 23rd, panic descended on central Washington and the nation's cattle industry over a single cow. USDA officials announced a Washington state dairy animal had tested positive for bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease. I'm Dan Wood, the executive director at the Washington State Dairy Federation. I was at Washington Farm Bureau and, uh, gosh, it was December of 03, and our office was closed down. I was in government relations and our public relations director, Dean Boyer, and I couldn't get any phone calls in. The voicemail system didn't work. We couldn't change an outgoing message. It was a, a operational disaster for public relations, you know, de- dealing with a big uh, media story. So we en- ended up camping out at the office to answer every call. There were ultimately almost six dozen federal agency people that came into the area to deal with it, media from all over the place. Uh, It was a very consuming situation. Today, many locals in Mabton know this event as the cow that stole Christmas. More than 30 countries immediately shut their borders to American beef. A single case of mad cow disease in one of the biggest beef-producing states in the biggest beef-producing country sent regulators and the industry on a frantic search. They needed to track down where the cow went after being slaughtered and find any other animals that may have come in contact with it before they showed up in the food supply. It's a time that Northwest News Network's Anna King remembers clearly. Basically what happened is that I was just sitting at my desk. I had this tiny, tiny desk, and it was right next to the editor. And then somebody else came to my desk and handed me this piece of paper. It had just come off the wire. It was still probably warm off the wire. And basically it said, there's been a mad cow, and it's been discovered not only in the United States, which was the first time ever, but it's been discovered in our backyard in Mabton, Washington. They've got a population now of about 2,000. I talked with the current mayor of Mabton, Rachel Rolas, and she said it was, you know, cloudy and and cold and overcast, and that there was nearly a dozen TV trucks just all lined up down in the main street with their satellite dishes deployed. She said it felt like the movies. There were press conferences 
Um, people still joke about it that this is the mad cow community. And she said the interesting thing is that younger people, like her own son, don't remember this happening. And so they have to be told stories by older people about when this happened to their community. And so I had to just start on the story right away. And then it snowed and um, it was the cow that stole Christmas, Libby. So as you mentioned, this was the first case of classical BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease in U.S. history. What made this such a huge deal, Anna? So mad cow disease is a prion developed disease. It affects the central nervous system and brain of an animal. BSE is kind of like making a cattle brain into Swiss cheese, and it really affects their nervous system. They often can't stand or walk well, and that's some of the symptoms you see when the cattle has that. For a long time, we didn't think that it could jump to humans, but that was, in fact, proven back in the 1990s. And it's really uncurable. Once an animal comes down with BSE, the animal must be put down so it doesn't suffer. The cow had contracted the disease in Canada, but then it had been shipped to the U.S. and it was sold to a farm here. And the scramble was on to figure out what had happened after that. Like, had this cow gone into the food chain? Had its calves gone into the food chain? Had it exposed other cattle on different farms? Where had it moved throughout its life? There was just so many questions. And we were trying to take one at a time and run it down to ground. Did they ever figure out how the cow got bovine spongiform encephalopathy in Canada? Well, at the time, there had been this feed ban that had gone into effect after people started understanding more about mad cow disease. What had happened is that they were feeding cattle parts like bone meal and protein meal to cattle. So it was actually like cattle eating cattle. That had been banned in Canada but not before this this particular animal had received some of that feed. So it arrives in the United States. You get the confirmation. Clearly, this had been an issue in other parts of the world. And there was this sense of the United States watching and fearing that Mad Cow would eventually show up on our shores. I remember the Texas ranchers who sued Oprah. Oprah Winfrey's in Texas facing a federal lawsuit claiming defamation of the American beef. She said she was worried about eating a burger because she was concerned that Mad Cow would eventually end up here. That was in 1998. Five years later, here is Mad Cow showing up in Washington state. You've spent a lot of time reporting on the cattle industry, Anna. Can you break down just how complex is it to track cows when you're suspecting some kind of disease like this? So my own family, we get feeder calves that have been weaned off their mothers from another premise, like another farm. We bring them in, we feed them until their sale weight, and then maybe we butcher them or maybe we take them to the sale. Then from that sale, they could go to many other farms before they are eventually taken to a a beef processing plant. 
And so these animals move throughout their lives in rivers and streams throughout the country. A Washington or an Oregon calf could be raised for maybe half a year or a year on a ranch out here. Then it could be loaded on a truck, taken to Oklahoma to a feedlot. It could be transported to Nebraska. It could come back to Oklahoma before going to a beef plant. It's really hard to track these streams of cattle that kind of rivulet throughout the whole country. This was hard because the cow in the system had already been slaughtered and it was a downer cow, which means basically when a cow is an ambulatory or when it can't walk on its own. The test went back to a lab in the U.S. and then it tested positive for BSE. And when it tested positive, then they sent it to another lab for confirmation, a more official government lab. And it was in between those two tests, the USDA decided that they had to come out and say this was in the system. But it's a presumptive positive. And then it wasn't until several days later that they actually found out that it was a true positive. After it was confirmed, they went on this cow hunt across the nation to get every cow that came in contact with that cow, every cow that might have been in the initial herd with that young cow, and all of her offspring so that they could get rid of any stem cause of this mad cow disease. What are regulators doing at this point once the cow is discovered? I mean, how extensive was the search? You know, there was a lot of USDA officials on the ground. I really tried for this question, Libby. I called many USDA officials to try to get more history on just how many, but uh, nobody would give me that answer. One woman, Elisa Harrison. H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. And in 2003, I was the director of communication at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. When she was in that office to begin with, just like right after 9-11, actually, she was dealing with like fax machines and handwritten lists of press contacts. But on the 23rd, they found out about 3 p.m. in December And then they had to go live at 5.30 with a press conference. I pulled together all of the folks from the Office of Communications and from the agency, Public Affairs, and gave out assignments. And I um, was able to talk our speechwriter into staying, um, to not taking off that afternoon to go home for Christmas and stay home and help us write uh, the secretary's remarks. Outside of the briefing room, there's a big conference room, and as we were getting ready to walk in, the secretary decided to make one last change. And so she got some scissors and tape and was kind of, you know, moving paragraphs around and taped that. And that was her final, and she walked in and delivered it. And so, obviously, the next couple days after that, um, the market reacted. Countries closed their borders to U.S. beef. And so that certainly created a lot of hardship within the industry. But uh, even to this day, the confidence in the safety of U.S. beef is very high. And I always think about that that moment right before she walked out to give that speech that we were just in the nick of time. And 
total, about 700 animals were destroyed in the U.S. in connection with this event, and about 120 were killed in Canada. And no other cattle, to my knowledge, were found to have BSE after the first cow, and no cases jumped to humans in this case. I'm talking with Anna King, who covers central Washington for the Northwest News Network. We're going to come back with more of the story of Mad Cow Christmas, December 2003 in central Washington, when we return on Soundside on KUOW. We're back with more Soundside on KUOW. I'm Libby Denkman. Before the break, I was talking with Anna King with the Northwest News Network about the story that shook central Washington and the nation's cattle industry 20 years ago this month. Mad Cow Christmas. So far, we've heard how a single cow that tested positive for the disease in Mabton, Washington, set off a massive hunt for any animals that came into contact with it, and for Patient Zero, the cow that had already been slaughtered before it entered the food supply. Now more with Anna King, who picks the story up from how the industry has changed in two decades to better track and prevent mad cow disease. Specifically in Washington state, there has been this this puzzle to figure out how to improve traceability of cattle and how to keep track of individual cattle in an industry when there's tens of thousands of cattle and they move around all the time. And I talked with a woman named Amber Idle, who's the Washington State veterinarian with the Department of Agriculture. You know, individual tracing of animals is really hard. If you're required to tag all your cattle at $2 a tag or so, it can add a lot of cost to already tight margins. And she says there's a big transition right now to these electronic IDs. And she says there's been a little bit of pushback from industry folks who see that as slowing down the process, that this traceability is essentially an added nuisance in their raising of animals. We built a veterinary module that can capture electronic ID, pair it to a back tag, and it's actually improved process. We're speeding up commerce by using electronic methods for traceability. So let's use the public livestock market as an example. If that animal has an electronic ID applied on the farm, the birth premises, we know where she started. Maybe she got a brucellosis vaccination and that's how she got her tag. Maybe the veterinarian applied a tag. Maybe the producer applied that tag. That official tag is that individual identifier that's unique to that animal. Think about like a license plate in a car. We want to know where was the animal born, and preferably they would get that individual electronic ID applied at the birth premises. So each time that animal is moved, we are scanning that tag, and we're determining, okay, where did we see her next? Where did she go next? She says that the industry feels better prepared for the outbreak, but... In 2003, foreign countries basically shut their doors to any American beef products, and so things really ground to a halt. And this tracking and some of the kind of voluntary record-keeping can help producers in the end keep away from those shutdowns because people are assured that the beef is safe. It's really, really important that we take these steps. They seem small, and for some people, they might even feel like a burden. But if we do get a disease here, it's really the only way that we can keep people in business, right? How do farmers cope with this? I mean, is there any way to get compensation? Is there economic or any kind of other support for what must be a devastating hit to their business? 
A lot of times when animals have to be depopulated from a farm, the USDA will give them some sort of payment. That's often kind of like a base rate. It's not always the most that the animal could be worth. For instance, let's say you had a breeding bull. A breeding bull is worth a lot more than perhaps like just a regular bull, but the USDA might give you some sort of like flat rate for that animal. So it is a really big loss for farms to cope with. And mentally, a lot of these animals are, even though they're cattle and they're, and they're, you know, commercial animals, a lot of ranchers that I know, know the mother or the grandmother or the, the sire of all of their animals. So they understand the bloodlines of all these animals. And it's very, very traumatic to have what you care about, your livelihood, trucked off in trailers and euthanized. It's just very, very upsetting for these guys. So we've talked about some of the safety measures that are in place since Mad Cow came to the United States. What hasn't changed since that time, Anna? Did anybody share concerns with you about safety? You know, Amber Idol told me a little bit about that BSE is extremely rare. And it doesn't mean that it can't ever happen, but that it could happen and it would likely be really bad if it did happen, but it wouldn't be maybe devastating. They test quite a few animals a year. And they're more concerned, actually, Libby, with other diseases. They're way more concerned with the bird flu becoming more virulent and even worse than it is, a bigger ripple than it already is. And they're also concerned with foot and mouth disease. They say if that reached the shores of the U.S. again in our time, right now as cattle move, it could be devastating. So they're juggling a lot trying to protect us from diseases that we might not have yet and also looking for diseases that could pop up at any moment. Here's Ryan Schultz, the Oregon State Veterinarian, I don't know that BSE really even registers on my radar of concern. You know, it would be it would be a tough week if we had BSE. But the thing with BSE is it, you know, really all that we're concerned about at this point, because of all of the overlapping safeguards that the U.S. has in place and has had in place for, you know, well beyond the lifespan of any cattle that are left here. The risk of classical BSE is, un, you know, outside of some sort of like illegal importation of cattle, which isn't impossible, but it's really hard to do. And even, you know, all of our neighboring states have safeguards and we've got import, you know, restrictions, all those. So it's just hard to come up with a scenario where you'd have a case of classical BSE that occurred. Really what we see is atypical BSE. And those, you know, you trace the cow back to its origin. You you look for the the siblings and, the, you know, any offspring and those kinds of things which takes some work, but you're not worried about really finding more than just that one case. You know, I get back to that Oprah lawsuit that she eventually won, but the Texas cattlemen were arguing that even talking about it on her show because it was so influential and planting the seed of fear about American beef 
was a huge hit to their business, that their stocks went down, their profits were affected. And it really reminds me that public perception is such a big part of this. Right, Anna? Did you talk to anybody about that? Yeah, I talked with this guy named Dan Wood, who's with the Washington State Dairy Federation. When I first called him, he didn't want to talk about this at all. And he told me that his biggest concern is this public perception. And I think that was the biggest concern 20 years ago. How do you assure people that everything is safe? You know, the fast food restaurants saw their stock prices drop. People bought less beef. We had other countries that put trade restrictions on the United States. The public was not impacted in in terms of they had safe beef. And if it ever happens again, that'll be the same outcome. The difference is going to be this time we will end up slaughtering fewer unaffected animals. Lastly, Anna, again, you covered this story when it first broke in 2003 as a cub reporter at the Tri-City Herald. And today you went out in search of a farmer whom you spoke to 20 years ago. This farmer had some of his calves put down as part of the search for the mad cow case. And his name is Sergio Madrigal. And you actually managed to find him to see how he's doing today. Can you tell us a bit about your meetup? Yeah, I'm going to be really honest, Libby. It was not the story that I thought I was going to find. Yo soy Sergio Madrigal. Vengo de Michoacán, Mexico. I met with him and his wife, Rosa, in this parking lot of this Mexican restaurant. And we kind of stood there in the parking lot for a minute or two. And they just like upon seeing me, they started to cry. And, you know, it was hard because when the cow that stole Christmas came, his farm had to weather this massive financial crash, which was basically they took all of his animals. He had more than 400 animals. The gobierno puso y se los llevó todos. Dejó nada. They euthanized them because there was one calf from that mother cow that had the BSE that was suspected at his farm. And, you know, he just remembered, like, having to truck them all off of the farm and them being taken up and being euthanized. And I was expecting that they would have weathered that financial crisis, that they would be in a different place, that they had you know, kind of done better since I saw them last time. And actually, they were in a worse place. Y mis niños desde chiquitos, trabajando para hacer esto que, que, que hice, para un error que cometí o algo, y no me dieron la oportunidad de recuperar lo, lo que hice en toda mi vida. Uh, that, you know, he worked all his life. You know, we've been working so hard with the kids and everything. And just for one mistake or, you know, whatever happened, we lost everything. Like, we lost lost the whole farm, everything, our house. So we're with nothing. And, you know, we were just standing there in the driveway of their old farm on this dirt road. And it was icy and cold. They had a couple other instances that they 
couldn't weather financially. They had a load of cattle that somebody took away and some of the cattle died and they weren't paid for the load uh, or they weren't paid for some of the load. And um, that was a really hard financial problem for them. And then they got some bad advice about paying their mortgage during COVID times. And um, they just got on the wrong side with the bank and they hired a lawyer, tried to get it back right, but they just couldn't get it back right. So I think that what I took from that is that when you're on the edge in agriculture and you don't have much of a safety net, it's really tough, Libby. It's it's a really tough life. And if you're trying to build something, it can be really difficult in cattle. And cattle are so volatile that the price fluctuates and goes up and down and they just got sideways uh, with their farm. And I know that it's taken so long to build this for them. And they're in their 40s and 50s now. So it's going to be a tough road to rebuild this at their age now. But I just appreciated that they were willing to meet with me again. And they were willing to talk to me about real life and that it is hard sometimes, even when you're trying the best you can to make a life with agriculture. No puedo decir nada porque son cosas de la naturaleza, no sé, son cosas que pasan que no puede uno evitar. You say it just, there's stuff that, you know, you can't stop or predict, so it's something that has to happen sometimes, you know. Anna King covers Central Washington for the Northwest News Network. Anna, thank you very much for your reporting. Thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.